Okay, just by way of review uh, from last week, and we're sort of in the second half of a sermon on persuading people that is under the larger category of apologetics. Um, just a few reminders. Word apologetics does not mean that we are apologizing for being Christians. Rather, we are giving a defense for it. It, it comes to mean a certain discipline um, of a Christian studies that oftentimes deals with arguments for the existence of God, justifications for different doctrines and beliefs, um, archaeological proofs, historical proofs, and so on. And, and we'll get to some of that. But I, I really did want to lay down a, a good foundation for, um, for apologetics. And that's going to be rooted in really understanding people. And so we talked last time about persuading people in this sermon title, and I know it's, it's not named correctly, it's meant to be a little bit ironic, is how to persuade people. Where the Bible does not ever kind of give a command to persuade people, and in fact, according to what we saw last week, it seems like even God seems to fail at persuading people. Remember when we talked about Moses, here he is, the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. He witnesses the burning bush, and for two chapters, you essentially have Moses fighting against God, and God is kind of uh, going back and forth with him. He's pulling out, in a way, all of the persuasive uh, tactics um, that you might use in, in business dealings and in conflict resolution, and it seems to get God almost nowhere. Now, here is God, and he seems not even to be able to persuade Moses. So where does that leave us? We are not nearly as persuasive as God, you might say. So what do we do? Uh, what can we, where, can, where do we go with that information? So I, I hope you get a sense that the issue then really cannot be about persuasion or how persuasive you are. Now, I, I want to make very clear, having said that, that we are not like... Um, the fancy term is fideists, and it comes from a Latin word for faith. A fideist basically says, look, you just got to believe. You got to believe because you got to believe. It's just about faith. You got to believe. It doesn't matter what, you, what evidence you have to the contrary. You just need to believe. We're not saying that because I do believe the Bible makes claims, actual, reasonable, defensible, coherent claims about our faith. Even the introduction to Luke, which we've, uh, as we've gone through Luke on Wednesday nights, uh, Luke is very clear to say that I'm trying to give you a record, a testimony of the things that happened so that you might be certain of them. So he is saying there, this is actual, this is real historical events. These are reasonable, that they conform to principles of, of sound thinking and logic and journalism, that they're defensible, meaning these can be proven or disproven. And that these are coherent, meaning not just internally coherent, because you can have a, a system that's internally coherent, but does not jive with the rest of the world. So, you know, think of lots of other religions. You're like, okay, I, I see how within your religion that makes sense. But when you try to map it onto the real world, it starts to fall apart. But we're saying that Christianity is coherent in itself, of course, but that it also is coherent with the world that we see around us. So I do believe that. And you might think that because we believe that we have an actual, reasonable, defensible, coherent faith, that it should be no problem at all to persuade people. But of course, we saw with Moses, that's not always the case. So the question is, why is it 
that people don't believe? Or why is it that people are not, let's say, persuadable? What's really the barrier to your unbelieving friends coming to understand and embrace the gospel? Let's do maybe just a quick series of uh, actually, we'll skip that part. We've got a, we got a lot to go. Um, that, that would be all introduction anyway. I just want to make sure that you understand as we go through this, I am not ever going to say, look, just believe it because I said so. Just believe it because God just wants you to believe. Other religions say that. Mormons say that, actually, because there are things in their system that they would know are contrary to itself or contrary to the world we live in. Things about where you might... Like what happened to dinosaur fossils and all kinds of things. They have crazy answers that are contradictory. And they will, at the end of the day, just tell you, listen, God is trying to test your faith. So even if it seems like a lie, you just need to believe it. Just believe it. No, no, no. Of course, we believe that this is logical coherent. The issue isn't that God is trying to deceive us or anything like that. Turn with me to Isaiah 118. We'll start there. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18. <clears throat> You've probably heard these verses before. The Lord says to the people of Israel, specifically in Judah, he says, come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Is God being unreasonable in this offer? Of course not, because he says, let's reason together. Uh, this is a legal or judicial word. It's the idea of let's lay the facts on the table and come to a reasonable, just conclusion. It will make sense. It implies that there's a right and wrong answer, yes, but even more than that, that anybody, you know, the jury will see that this is reasonable. Now, what are the options here? What is this reasonable offer? Well, you have on the one hand, you know, uh, you're, you're a sinner, and I'm offering you cleansing and blessing. Or, on the other hand, <laughs> you're a sinner, and you can have death and judgment. You choose, okay? <laughs> do you want cleansing, forgiveness, and blessing, or do you want death and judgment? Come, let us reason together. Now, what's ironic about God even saying, let's reason together? Is there anything to discuss about this? Like, why is this even a question? What person would look at these options and be tempted to take death and judgment? But it's saying something, isn't it? For God to say, well, let's reason together. And you know what he says right after those verses? How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And so on. If you know the book of Isaiah, you have 39 chapters of God's judgment upon Judah, or the southern kingdom. So what happened? They had God's blessing. They had forgiveness. They always had that option. But what had they been choosing? Death and judgment. Death and judgment. And finally, God says, I'm going to bring death and judgment through the Babylonians. 
So somehow, some way, we have to reckon with this. We have a very logical, reasonable, coherent, defensible faith, don't we? But God is saying, literally, you can lay out in front of people life or death, <laughs> forgiveness of your sins or condemnation, and what will people do? They'll choose death and judgment. So we are going to just try to explain that and wrap our minds around it because I think we got to put apologetics in its right place in our understanding of people and their hearts. There's something very wrong here, and you cannot just make a choice, you know, lay out a choice for people or lay out a very logical, coherent argument, and people are like, oh, I see, I get it. That's not necessarily how it works. Now, for some people, it does work that way. But at the heart of it, there's always something. We have to explain why or how it is that a person could be so unreasonable and why then being very reasonable maybe isn't exactly the goal of our Christian life or testimony. So what, it'll change how I think we, we, what we have as our goal as Christians or whether we're even trying to quote and unquote persuade people. Now, the very, 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 very basic answer to this question of why people don't believe, why aren't they persuadable, is one word. It's sin. <laughs> That's it. It's just sin. I, I think it's kind of funny because there are so many arguments for Christianity, which I think are well and good. Uh, there's so many books that are written on philosophy and Christian philosophy and apologetics, and I love reading that stuff. And, and I think I would commend any of those books to you. I have a, whole, you know, have a whole shelf of these apologetics books. But what they will, all the good ones will kind of have in common is this idea. God might use those things as a means for people to have their eyes open, but fundamentally the issue is sin. And we know that, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, but we know that because what did Jesus come and do ultimately for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He didn't come and become a world-class lecturer, right, or philosopher. He didn't come and give us 10, you know, uh, steps to why there's a God and why it's the Christian God. He didn't die and do any of that. He barely gave, you might even call, an apologetic kind of argument, except if you read no Moses and the prophets, you would believe me, that kind of thing. But fundamentally, if we say that, this is jumping ahead, but I just feel like I got to say it now. If the solution is dying on the cross for sins, what's the problem? Sin. Not an intelligence problem, not a lack of information problem, not an ignorance problem, not a, a logic, illogic problem. It is a sin problem. So, the answer to why people will say and do wacky things in the light of clear, obvious evidence is the blinding effect of sin. So I want us to understand this. We're going to go through a few verses on the blinding effect of sin, and then um, we'll, we'll talk about um, the good news. So <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. So you're in, if you're in Isaiah, you just go a few, uh, one book over to your right, Jeremiah 5 Actually we'll we'll do we'll do the next one. 
Jeremiah 17, sorry. We'll do Jeremiah 17. A little bit different point for that. But Jeremiah 17, verse 9. You probably know this verse as well. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, in the Hebrew mind, the heart is not where your emotions are and your feelings are. The heart is where your convictions are, where your judgments about right and wrong and the things that are important to you are. So to say that the heart is deceitful and sick and who can understand it, what's, what's uh, <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, Jeremiah speaking, but it's God speaking through Jeremiah. God is saying this. What does that say about your understanding of yourself and your judgments about right and wrong, good and evil. What's it saying? Who can understand it? What does that imply? Can you understand it? I, I mean, I, I, maybe you are better off than me, but there's many times where I think, why did I say that, do that, think that? <laughs> where did that come from? I, I, there are times I can hardly understand myself. I can hardly understand how sinful I am, why I do things when I know better. It just is not this verse so true. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think if I just pulled this verse out and anyone would agree with it. Like, do you ever like just confound and disappoint yourself? Well, who on earth would not say, well, yeah, there's times where uh, I set a stand for myself. I don't keep it. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. I mean, who hasn't ever lied to themselves? Our hearts are that wicked. Who knows it, though? Who does know it? God, Yahweh, I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind. What is that saying? Who can understand it? I can't. I can barely understand my own heart, let alone yours. But you know who does? God. God knows why we did it. God knows that we are sinful. But um, here I just want to point out the, one of the blinding effects of sin. Think of this. Sin is so confusing, irrational, illogical, you don't even know why you do it sometimes, right? That's crazy. That's a crazy thought. It almost makes it seem like uh, you're not in control of you. But yet that is kind of what sin is like, is this, is this irrational thought. Again, you have before you cleansing and blessing or death and judgment. And there are every time we sin, what are we doing? I don't know, a little bit of death and judgment. You know, just a little bit of death and judgment. Huh? Yeah, well, it's a lack of conviction happening at that moment. So sin is blinding to you. James chapter uh, 1, 14 and 15, and then James chapter 4. So it's in the New Testament. We've got Hebrew and then James. If you went to 1 Peter, you're too far. James chapter 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Look now at James 4, 
1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So both of these passages, you're talking about temptations. Your temptations make you, right? Your sinful temptations make you ignore and excuse negative consequences. That when you want something bad enough, You'll be like, well, I know this is going to cause trouble later with someone, but I really want it now. So if I have to fight about it later, I guess I'm willing to do that. I mean, sin can be so blinding that you dismiss the warning signs. You just want to do it so much, you know how this is going to turn out. You know you're going to regret it, and somehow still you're going to choose to still do it eyes wide open. So that's crazy um, because Jeremiah is saying, yeah, sometimes it gets so confusing in your heart. You don't even know why you said it. It just pops intrusive thought, gets in your head. I don't know why. But James is saying, you know, sometimes you do stuff so wide open. You know what this is going to cause. You just give in to your temptations because you want it so bad. Romans 1.18, a little bit similar kind of um, picture. Romans 1.18 Paul talks about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they came, became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So this is saying that not only can you be so, you know, unaware of what's going on in your heart, that you, you sin, you don't even know why you sin, you don't know where it came from, not only are there times when your temptations make you just wise, you know, wide open, I want this so bad that I'm still going to do it, um, Romans 1 is saying sometimes, or not all times, no one even has an excuse because the whole world is screaming at you that there is a God, that is in, his nature and character is, is very obvious in the world. And so even despite, you could say, someone saying, you know, this is wrong, don't do this, or there is a God to whom you must account for, which is what every star is signaling and every... Um, Every force of nature, every mountain and stream, everything is crying out, there is a God in the face of a positive witness about why you shouldn't do the things you do and why you need to humble yourself before God. We will actively suppress that truth. So this is um, just adding up this idea that sin is so dominating, so blinding to us. And, and I use the term blinding not in a passive sense, but that we are even actively suppressing the knowledge of God. Don't tell me what God says. God, I don't want to hear it. In fact, I will even, as he says later, I will make up other gods, other religions, just to deny the God that I know exists. So it's a very active suppressing of the truth. So blind, it's, it's almost too passive a word to talk about what sin does to us. It also makes us actively shut out who God is, despite the overwhelming testimony. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 
we'll add just another element to this. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, as if that wasn't all bad enough, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul talks about Satan. He says, in their case, the God, and he's talking about people who are perishing, unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So not only do we have ourselves to contend with, we also have an enemy who's actively hindering people from seeing the truth of God. Now, it's likely through, not that he's, um, I think it's in what he does. He brings stuff to be tempted by, you know? He whispers lies into our ears. He tries to drone out all the testimony of the heavens and the earth, saying that there is a God. It's more in those kinds of mechanisms that he's doing it. But we have an active enemy, an opponent, who is also trying to keep us from the truth. If you wanted to sum up, you could sum it up like Ephesians 2 says, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Have you ever argued with a dead person before and tried to persuade them of something? I, I have this joke, like, um, <laughs> or the, this story I tell, you've probably heard it, um, but um, whenever I wanted to get something from my dad to say yes to, I'd ask him when he's sleeping, and I would say, hey, dad, like, uh, if it's okay if I go out this Friday night, just don't say anything. You know, now he's asleep, right? <laughs> so he can't respond. <laughs> so that was, that was my way, like, of, like, asking him to do something, all right? Uh, <laughs> this reminds me of another story. Is, uh, I, um, me and Mark Sherman, if, uh, if you remember Pastor Dennis, he had a son. Mark and I were roommates for a while, and uh, we were on this um, road trip. I <laughs> we went to a conference out in Kentucky. We're on the road trip back, so we're sharing a motel room, him, me, and, uh, and Daniel Lee. And so uh, I didn't know this about him at the time, but he was a sleepwalker. So uh, I was uh, sleeping, I think, on the floor. Yeah, I think because we were too cheap to get, like, you know, more than one bed. So it was like two guys in the bed, one guy on the floor. We just wrote this. I'm on the floor, and I hear Mark get up and go over and check the door lock and then just go back to sleep. Now, we're in a motel, like it automatically, it's kind of, kind of automatically locks, right? So he did this a couple times. I'm like, Mark, Mark, are you okay? And he just mumbled something and went back to sleep. Now, I asked him about it later, and he said, I don't remember any of it. I'm like, Mark, do you know you sleepwalk? You know, like, y y you don't remember any of it? It's like, no. I was like, Mark, you must sleepwalk. <laughs> and I, I, I want to say he denied it, but it, the next night, right, um, he gets up, Right? And I started asking him um, math questions because I figured if he's asleep, he won't be able to <laughs> do like a math question in like, you know, his deep sleep. So I start throwing math questions at him, real simple one, you know, it's three plus five or something. And, and he gets real, you know, he does this, they stop asking me questions, and he goes, you know, checks the lock, goes back to sleep. He was sleepwalking, right? And sleep talking. When you're dead in your trespasses and sins, it's not obviously like you're a dead person right? I mean, you're obviously walking around, but you can't, like, argue, like, with a dead person, in a way. You can't persuade a dead person, and so it's like, you know, Mark over here, he's, he's doing all this stuff automatically, closing the, closing the doors, but he was asleep the whole time. I couldn't have a reasonable conversation with him, although he was kind of arguing with me, like, stop asking me, you know, um, stop asking me, 
math questions. And when I ask them about it later, you know, I don't remember any of it. I, I kind of think of it like that. Like when you're trying to persuade unbelievers, I, I think you can, you know, talk. It's not like they're, they're not able to form sentences or even think logically, but there's kind of this sense of like you can't really, really talk to them unless they have an awareness that they're like awake, okay? Um, that they're even awake. So maybe that analogy works better than I thought it would. Um, <laughs> when you put that all together, what we see from Moses and Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and that stubborn aunt or neighbor, it makes sense why they don't believe, why they are not persuaded. We could have all the answers for people's questions, and we should, because we are to give a defense for the hope that lies within us, but we shouldn't be surprised if people reject the good news still. We are permeated by the effect of the fall through and through, including our mind and our reason. Some theologians call this the noetic effect of sin. Noetic not being like Noah, um, the man, but noetic meaning the mind that the sin pervades our minds. Um, we, uh, okay, fine, we'll do this. So, for example, Satan. I'll give you an example of the blinding effect of Satan, uh, of sin on Satan, who is kind of our preeminent example. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Matthew chapter 16, <clears throat> familiar scene, Right after Peter, Mr. Foot in His Mouth, gives this amazing declaration of, to Jesus at Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, this scene happens next, all right? Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So through Peter, what was Satan trying to do? To keep Jesus from the cross, right? That's the strategy. It may never be try to distract Jesus from the cross somehow, some way. Tell him, no, you're, this shouldn't happen to you. You don't deserve that. Now look in Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 3. <clears throat> then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So Satan enters Judas to do what? Now, to propel him to the cross. So at one moment, Satan's like, don't go to the cross. You know, a little bit later, Satan's like, all right, let's get him on the cross. Well, which is it, Satan? Uh, I had a, a professor kind of pose that question to us. You know, how, how do you make sense of that? What is his strategy here? You know, Satan's a, you might even say the most intelligent being, you know, of all the created order. I mean, I think we could probably give Satan that crown. He's the, created the highest of the angels and so on. 
He's a very intelligent being. He knows God better than you do. I mean, in a way, I think we could say that too, right? So how is it that he's being so confusing and convoluted? Well, guess what? Sin, hatred, it's blinding and it's irrational. I don't need to try and make sense of why Satan thought it was a good idea at one moment to say, don't go to the cross, and the next minute, say go to the cross because sin is kind of stupid that way. Hatred is blinding in that way. In a, in a sense, it doesn't make any sense. I, I hope you've never been in like a blind rage before, but if you've ever experienced it, I think maybe one or two times I've been there where you just can't even think straight. You're just so upset and so angry. You're just not, you know, you're not thinking rightly about things. That's just how bad it is. So here's Satan, um, who, who is intelligent and, 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 you know, he was glorious and beautiful and all these things. And yet at the very beginning, you know, from before the time of Adam and Eve's fall, what did he do? He had a choice and he chose to go against God, which is the ultimate in sin and pride and stupidity. And you can see that sin affects everything about us in that sense. I mean, if Satan does that, then, you know, how about you? How about me? How about your unbelieving friend, family, neighbor, schoolmate? So sin is that, you know, it's that messed up. It can mess you up that much where you don't understand even the most basic things. Again, it's not that I got a really long quote about it, but I probably won't give it. But it's not that sin just makes you a brute animal. Because one way you might go with this is that sin is, makes you so irrational that you're just like a beast. Well, well no, no, we're, we're not. We're still made in the image of God. But uh, the point of it is, is to make the issue a moral issue. The animals have no moral accountability. So for us to have a moral accountability means that we need to know on some level, that we are sinning against God in order to be accountable to Him. Um, and so we are beyond the brutes, but we have enough intelligence and will um, to know as much as we are sinners in His eyes. I'm jumping ahead, but all right. So the problem then in apologetics, as with anything, when it deals with evangelism, when it deals with sharing with people, when it deals with our relationships with unbelievers and even believers, if there's ever anything wrong, complicated, bad, uncomfortable, it's, it's sin. That's the answer. And it's because sin is so congenital from our birth and pervasive. Um, I won't spend too much time on this, but um, Psalm 51. I don't think I need to persuade this group because you guys are pretty savvy. But just in case, Psalm 51. Here is David in his song of uh, lament. You know, he has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against her husband Uriah, had him murdered. And now he was, ex or he was exposed by Nathan of his own sin. What does he say? Psalm 51, 5. <clears throat> I will start in verse 3. <laughs> For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David, the man after God's own heart, confessing, repenting of a sin of adultery and murder before, uh, before God, he admits that the problem didn't start when he saw Bathsheba on the roof. 
But from the moment that he was conceived, he was a sinner. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And I've used illustration of babies before, but you know, do, do you need to teach a baby to be selfish and self-centered? <laughs> no, I, no they, they know that. To demand their desires above everyone else's in the whole house? Like, no, you don't need to teach them. Think, think, about, think about how selfish they are. They definitely think everyone in that house needs to bow down to them. I just, you know, we got, you know, Zeke, who's cute, and it's a good thing that he's cute and weak <laughs> and small, because he thinks the whole house, every creature and animal, and we got a lot of them, should be oriented under him. It's a crazy thing, right? I mean, even here, right? He thinks, like, who, who runs this place? Who can be the loudest? It's Ezekiel. He thinks, I didn't, I didn't have to teach him that. I teach him the opposite of that. So we know that, that our inclination, our heart, is, is in that direction. And so here's the thing. If sin is congenital from birth and it's pervasive, meaning it affects our whole being. Sometimes you, uh, if you've ever heard the, um, the acronym TULIP for Calvinism and the T is total depravity, and that might sound like, well, I don't feel like I'm totally depraved. Like some, some days I have good days and I'm not, you know, out there murdering people and running, you know, grandmother's over in my car. I'm not that depraved. But total depravity doesn't mean that you are as evil as you can be. Total depravity means that sin touches and affects every part of your life, which is true in lesser degrees and greater degrees um, and at different times. But that just the idea that it touches on, on everything, it's pervasive. So guess what? If the sin, if sin is congenital and pervasive for every person, you have something in common with every person on the planet, don't you? In fact, you have always something to talk about because I may not be a subject matter expert in philosophy or archaeology or church history, but you know what I am a subject matter expert in? Sin. <laughs> and <laughs> that's all it takes. So I know with the apologetics thing, I know some people are a little intimidated about the idea because, oh, I don't know if I can remember all of the different arguments for God's existence and all these things. You don't, that's all nice. And if you're gifted that way and you're inclined that way, go for it. We could definitely use more, you know, scholars and, and, and apologists and so on. But really, all you need to do is be an expert on sin <laughs> because that's the real issue. And I can tell you, I know a lot about a lot of things, but one thing I know a lot, a lot about is sin. I mean, I wrestle with it all the time. I, I, I don't think, well, not I don't think, you cannot come to the Lord apart from having an awareness of your sin, right? So I, I, on the one hand, it's kind of, you know, kind of a dark humor to say that this is what you have in common with anyone, that you can talk about anyone with and have a gospel conversation, is to talk about sin, because everyone, everyone has to deal with it. Even if they don't want to talk about their own sin, we're affected by sin too, aren't we? So even if you've got someone that's like absolutely, you know, will not say anything about their own sin, if you say, well, have people sinned against you? You know, how does that make you feel, right? And you start talking about, yeah, yeah, I just hate this guy because, you know, he did this and that. Oh, like, is that hatred, like, good? Like, is that, no, I mean, I probably shouldn't hate them. Well, you can get to their sin, even if you just talk about the sin that uh, has happened to them. But uh, I really appreciate, in a sense, the idea that we have something in common with everybody. 
I mean, we're all made in the image of God, image of God yes, um, that's true. Um, but we have sin in common, and so I can talk about that. I can talk about my own if you don't want to talk about yours. And we can have a gospel conversation that way. So that is the good news, actually, that if sin is the problem, you know a lot about that. And if you're a Christian, you know the answer too, don't you? The gospel is the answer to the question of our sin. Already said it at the beginning of the sermon, you know, giving away the punchline. But if what Jesus did ultimately for us was to die and rise again for our sins, then that tells you what the question is, if that's the answer. It's not that we didn't have enough information. It's not that we were not clever enough. It's not that we're missing some little bit of the piece of the puzzle. It's that we were all accountable to God. There's a God made all things. He's the arbiter of right and wrong. We'll bring it into judgment and you need to stand before him, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? If you can buy God off with your good works, what does that say about God? If, if, if God doesn't have any way that you can be right with him, what does that say about God? But for God to say, I both judge and condemn sin, but I also forgive it through Jesus, Isaiah 118 again, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'll make you white as wool. I can offer forgiveness and cleansing and blessing or judgment and death. It's so reasonable to say, well, I'd rather have the life. Be encouraged then that uh, you hear, if you're not fancying yourself an expert apologist, that it isn't about your brilliance. It isn't about your obtuseness. And you think, I can't, I can't possibly um, give any kind of, you know, Defense for the hope that lies within me. Well, look at 1 Corinthians 126. <clears throat> One of my favorite passages <laughs> because it ensures me I don't have to be the best and the brightest or the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, let's start in verse 20, actually. Mm, let's start in verse 18. Why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> for the word of the cross, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. He's about to, he's about to diss them, right, and insult them. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's amazing. I mean, if you don't feel insulted by it, you know. Uh, so you're saying I'm not the smartest, the, the, the wisest, the most powerful, but I'm, I'm weak and I'm nothing? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because God, and it's not, it's not to say that there's never any rich or powerful people that ever became Christians or believers. That, that's not his point in saying that. And he wasn't trying to, the, the Corinthians thought pretty highly of themselves. So understand that in their minds, they were rich and wise and all these things. So you have to understand he is trying to take them down a peg. So it's not to make you feel like you have, you know, low self-esteem if you already have self-esteem issues. No, these guys already thought a lot of themselves. So he's trying to tell them, let's be honest here. You know, it, it isn't about that anyway. Even if you were the debater of this age, the, the wisdom of the world is not even the foolishness of God. That's an amazing thought. And it does, again, make me think, you know, we have a reasonable faith, but to the unbelieving and unsaved, it could very well sound like foolishness. And, and it does, but not because, again, it's incoherent, not because it's indefensible, not because it's illogical, but because a mind that is so burnt out by sin, it cannot see what it needs to see. It's been too blinded um, to itself. So be encouraged. It's not about your brilliance or your obtuseness. And then don't be surprised if people reject your message. We should expect in some ways that people don't always see these things, but it's not personal to you. It's not that you didn't do a good enough job. It's not that you didn't have the right words. I know people come to me with the questions that someone else gave to them, and they feel very ill-equipped to have responded to it, and, and so on. And I love to give those answers, but I, I hope that no one ever comes away thinking, oh, if I give them Pastor Yuri's answer, then they're going to you know, become a Christian or something. That's rarely ever been the case. Instead, we are to be martyrs. Now, a martyr in our thinking is someone who dies for their faith. But the bare um, the bare definition of the word martyr is one who testifies, like in a court setting. We are to be martyrs. Uh, the word of, uh, you know, being an apologist actually doesn't come up very much at all in the Bible, but the word that you see many times is this word for testimony, martyr. And being a martyr is like being a satellite dish, okay? Now, that might sound funny, um, but uh, the way satellite dishes work Okay, so you guys all have an image of your mind of a satellite dish. So it's like a, a, a bowl shape. And then you usually have like an antenna kind of thing in the middle of it, right? So a satellite dish is designed so that wherever you hit that satellite dish with your signal, it's going to bounce it back to the central point. That's the point of a satellite dish. So the, the purpose of the, um, the curve to it is that anywhere that signal hits, it's going to bounce back into this central focal point. Well, being a, a, a martyr is, is living a life where anything that happens, anything, any um, situation you find yourself in, any conversation, you are able to turn it back to this focus of the Lord. Not, not just like, hey, let's talk, we're talking about you know, the weather, and you immediately start talking about Jesus, 
you know, there can be a few steps talking about the weather and talking about the gospel, but that we have a lifestyle that says anything and everything that happens, the reason I'm alive is to use all the situations God has placed me in to bring people to this focal point of Jesus. We said last week that, you know, giving a, a defense for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and fear, our hope is not that we can win friends and influence people, but rather that trusting God uses our behavior, our words, our attitudes, our responses, our submission, our suffering to point people to the Lord um, is truly our call, even in apologetics. Even the point of giving a defense is to say, when you are suffering and people are accusing you of things, don't use it as an opportunity to defend yourself. Use it as an opportunity to point people to the Lord in any and every circumstance. So I know for a sermon <clears throat> about how to persuade people, I know in, inevitably, not inevitably, but um, ironically, uh, it's not so much about saying that we can persuade people, but rather to give us the even tougher job to say that you and your life, whether you think people are looking or not, are you using all of the events, all of the situations, all the conversations to try and orient people to the Lord in some way? Again, doesn't mean that you have to shoehorn a conversation about Jesus into, you know, you're talking about movies or you know, what's for dinner? You know, <laughs> Catherine asks, hey, what's for dinner? Well, you know, or I ask Catherine, you know, what's for dinner? She says meatloaf. And say, so, you know, meatloaf kind of reminds me of, you know, the Sermon on the Mount or something and like just launch into that. No, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be like awkward like that. But uh, the idea is you're always looking for ways, especially with unbelieving friends and family to just point people in that gospel direction. Okay, unless you're in an elevator that's falling from the 100th floor and you're going to die and you need to give that two-minute pitch or 20-second pitch or in your plane that's about to crash, I don't think there needs to be a sense where you have to shoehorn the gospel in, but just an orienting people, just like that satellite dish, towards the Lord in some way, some greater way they were than before they talked to you. I think that ends up being a great testimony and being a martyr. Now, ultimately, and we're going to get to this, um, I don't know if it's the next sermon or the next, next sermon, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, ultimately, though, I think you've seen also in these passages, you see it there in 1 Corinthians when he says that to those who are called, there's a sense in which for people to be able to see their sin rightly, it requires an act of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts, to take away the blinders from our eyes, to be able to see our sin it's an act of God too, but he might use and he does use our testimony, our witness, our defense, our explanations, our answering of their Bible questions, our love and charity, our humility, our grace, our forgiveness, our asking for forgiveness. God can use, fortunately, any of those things to accomplish his purpose. So all we have but to live a Christian life, a satellite dish, as it were. I'll close with this quote from A.W. Pink from the Restoration of David. And that's kind of about Psalm 51. A.W. Pink says, Thus it was with each of us whilst in a state of nature. Sin blinds and hardens, and naught but divine grace can illumine and soften. Nothing short of the power of the Almighty can pierce the calloused conscience 
or break the sin-petrified heart. That's why we pray for those loved ones who we think need the gospel. That's why we're not surprised when they don't respond, when you present life and death to them, when they don't say, oh, life, of course. We understand, we have sympathy towards the fact that they are sinners that don't always think very logically and rationally. And you have but to think even of yourselves in your own life. You know, yeah, there are times when I sin, and it's just like, why? What was I thinking? We can have some sympathy and pity for them and trust that the Lord, by our acts of faith and love and speaking the truth, uh, might bring people to himself. So you don't need to persuade anybody. We said that last week. It's not about persuading people, but living a life faithfully to the Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again, that it's not up to us, that if ultimately your plan depended on me being um, a perfect example of you know, holiness and righteousness and good works, um, then there's not much of a hope at all. But rather you de decided in your sovereign plan to deliberately choose those who are weak, those who are not rich, and those who are not the wisest, um, because you are more glorified, it seems, to use us who are so weak and frail a lot of the times, um, to do glorious and good things. And that way, how can we boast? We're going to give the glory to you. Um, and so we pray, Lord, especially tonight you know, for those in our life that we love, but that are far from you. Or maybe they seem close, and we don't know what can bring them that next little step. Whoever they are in our hearts, Lord, we lay them um, to you. We ask that your spirit might work in their lives, and that you would help us to live a life consistent with those things that we preach, and with those things um, that reflect and glorify you. We pray, Lord, your blessing for the food and the time we have tonight of fellowship. Uh, may it be warm and full of encouragement uh, and blessing for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>